But it was kind of a romantic thing still, really, because after 14 years, we could still kind of learn things about ourselves and each other together uh, in an abandoned horror movie jacuzzi in the middle of the night. I need to get better. Please make me better. I want to get better. Better. Better acquainted with you. Today we're getting better acquainted with my life in 2015. My name's Dave. I'm the host of Getting Better Acquainted. Regular listeners will be very used to the sound of my voice. This is the third instalment of what's become an annual tradition of me starting the year by looking back, thinking about what I've done this year and where I'm going next year and talking to you the listeners about that and I'm gonna play you some performances that I've done on the Spark London true storytelling stage this year those stories will touch on mental health issues and traumatic childhood and stuff like that the kind of regular things that come up in stories I tell although I don't think these stories go particularly dark on that stuff and I'm also going to play some clips from the restart project podcast which is another thing that I do which I'd love you guys to listen to. I'm recording this episode literally on New Year's Eve 2015. So tomorrow will be the first day of 2016. Two years ago, I recorded an episode called An Uncertain New Year. And I was uncertain that year because I knew that in April I would lose my job. And that when I lost that job, rather than trying to get another day job, what I was going to do was try to make it as a freelancer. And I was uncertain if I could do that. I didn't know if I was taking on too much. I thought that I might not be able to get getting better acquainted out as regularly as I normally did. And I was worried about everything that I had taken on. And that uncertainty was like jumping out of an aeroplane and not knowing if the parachute was going to open to catch your fall. A year later, it felt like the parachute had opened. Last year's episode was called The Parachute Opened, and I'd managed to make some money from being a freelancer. Not very much money, but then I didn't used to earn very much money in my job, so I'd earned enough to basically pay my rent at that stage, and I had managed to do all of the projects. I hadn't had to cut out any episodes of Getting Better Acquainted. I'd kept control of everything and done the things that I felt passionately about and started making money from the things that I did. So I felt very good last year. I felt like I had been caught by the parachute, but it's complicated life. It doesn't fulfil narrative elegance. So this year, I'd say I'm not sure if the parachute opened. It depends on what you mean. This year has not been financially very good for me. Like I have not made very much money and I've not really made enough to cover my rent, particularly as this year when I took my show Stand Up Tragedy and my solo show up to the Edinburgh Festival, I didn't break even. And it's meant that this year I've really used up the £10,000 that I got from my grand passing away a couple of years ago. And so now I'm basically at the point where I have to make each month's rent. I don't have anything to cushion me. And so it puts me in a kind of 
tricky situation of having to try and make money and to try and find work and to prioritize and decide which projects I'm doing, which ones I need to lose, which ones I need to put on ice for a bit and that sort of thing. Those are the kinds of things I'm thinking about as this year begins. However, this year, whilst it has been ultimately a financial loss, it's been harder to find work. And as I said, I lost money in Edinburgh. Creatively, it's been very fulfilling and I feel like I've really made the kind of creative work that I want to make. I feel very proud of the work that I've made this year and if I was analysing this year just based on that then I would say it's been a real success and so even though I'm really scared at the moment about how can I make some money from all of this I don't feel kind of crushed by that or I don't feel as crushed as that as I did during this year because looking back I feel like I have put the work in even if it didn't make me money and I have achieved a hell of a lot of things that I'm really proud of. 2015 has been a great year for getting better acquainted. The episodes have been great but then they always are great like I advise people who haven't listened back to go and listen back to the archives because there are so many great conversations that have been recorded and shared in this show and 2015 has lived up to that quality but it's also been a year when that's been recognized a little bit more than before so this year the show has been played and recommended by the radio 4 series in pod we trust it's been recommended a few times by the guardian and it's been recommended by the financial times What I'd say about the show at the moment is it's kind of critically acclaimed and cult. It's not necessarily got massive, massive numbers that some podcasts have got, but it's got regular listeners and it's got some great support from really talented podcasters who I admire, who champion the show. And that's something that I'm very pleased about and hope to be building on in the next year. Getting Better Acquainted has been referred to in those publications sometimes as one of the only good British podcasts. I'd like to make it really clear that I think there's loads of other really good podcasts out there. But it's it's really great that Getting Better Acquainted is being heard. So please listen out for those other great British podcasts. Looking back at my diary for this year really surprised me. It's felt generally like I'm not doing enough, like I've never been doing enough. But I was kind of bowled over by the amount that I have been doing. I carried on doing a regular gig for quite a few months this year with Storylines, doing improvised theatre at the Deptford Lounge, which is a library in Deptford. That was an amazing project. And I hope that that project happens again or that similar things come from that working with storylines was really great I was doing the social media for them but I also got involved in making the performances sometimes performing sometimes getting involved in some of the direction it was a pleasure to do that and it was great to have regular income the other places that I've had some regular income has been hosting the True Storytelling Night Spark in Hackney at the Hackney Attic, which I get a little bit of money for every month. And then I'm also doing a podcast called The Restart Project. That started this year, like in the first week of this year, I went for a meeting with Janet and Ugo from Restart. We sat down, they were interested in having a podcast made about what they do. I'd reached out to them on Twitter when I saw that they were looking and 
they said come along and meet them and I'm so glad that I did that because the Restart Project is a really great thing like it's a social enterprise looking to change our relationship with how we see gadgets and and move us towards a more sustainable relationship with technology and so it's a great project that I'm really pleased to have found out about but I'm even more pleased to have been collaborating with them and making the shows with them. I've learned so much in my time so far making podcasts with them. I'm making one podcast a month at the moment. There is funding for that. So that is part of giving me a regular gig. And regular gigs are what freelancers need to be able to relax and not worry about the bills. And so Restart has been a really important part of that. And I'm really pleased to have also linked up restart with resonance fm and so now there's a weekly live show that goes out on resonance 104.4 fm with janet and ugo and sometimes with me talking about tech news from the unique perspective of the restart project and then once a month there's an in-depth documentary show which i do which mixes together audio recorded at the restart projects with expert opinions and kind of road trip stuff and all sorts of different things looking at specific issues like sustainable economy like the history of fixing things like what happens at a recycling plant and all of that is threaded through with what happens at a restart party and a restart party is where you can go if you've got some electronic stuff that's not working and you want it to be fixed where you'll meet their restarters who will help you and teach you how to fix your equipment so it's a place about education about fixing things meeting people it's a really great event that you can go to and i recommend going to the restartproject.org checking out what they do and seeing where the nearest restart party is to you and if there isn't one near you maybe you could set it up so to give you a break from my voice let's have some clips from a couple of the restart project episodes that i've made this year a few tasters to give you an idea of what the show is like and if you like that then you can subscribe to restart on itunes or anywhere that podcasts go to hang out on the internet they're on soundcloud and you can also find them at the restartproject.org the thing I brought today was a Grundig battery-operated radio, which I bought in Berlin in 1956. And the guy that repaired it said it was beautifully made, better switches than we have on the equipment today. He was really quite proud, you know, to be working on it. Probably you don't remember, but it was a top name in televisions and radios. It's equal to Samsung today. He said, the guy that repaired it, said it's a wonderful little radio. The only thing that was wrong with it was that it was crackling. It was working okay, but it was crackling in the background. And he's fixed on that, but he, he worked on it. It, it took him a long time. He just, I, can't, I can't work this out, he said. It's not in the radio, he said. It must be somewhere else. And it was, it was in the batteries. Oh, the right. way the batteries were in, interlinked. You've used that radio all of that time, all of those years? I use it every morning. That's a long time to have something these days, like com- comparatively, like people throw things away so so frequently. It's been an absolute pleasure and a delight. Come along, such a nice, friendly centre. 
and have my, have my radio fixed. So that was Paul talking to me at Abbey Community Centre in Kilburn at a restart party earlier this month. And I wanted to start today's episode with that lovely piece of personal history, because today's episode is about the history of fixing objects. And so, I mean, in my local area, there's a metal recycling box. It takes electronic waste. I put my stuff into that. What happens to it next? The journey from the household waste site is directly from that site down to us in Sydney. Right to the end where electronics comes in, right. I'll show you a big pile outside. Obviously, uh, yeah, just so that you can understand kind of what what's happening. Uh, we exchange yeah. maybe four or five tonnes of material at one time, so the, the actual journeys are quite economic per tonne. Uh, it gets tipped down with us on the same day that it's collected, and the process as we kind of walk through is really about creating commodities from the electronics in the most efficient, safe, environmentally friendly manner we can. Right, and so it comes here to the plant, and we've seen to, I've seen today, and I've been really kind of like fascinated. I mean, you could basically get hypnotised, as you said, when we were walking around by all of the machinery here. To someone who's, who doesn't know anything about it, it just looks like lots of kind of conveyor belts, I guess, and different things are getting taken from place to place by these conveyor belts and sorted in different ways and then at certain points there's humans who get involved because I guess machines can't sort everything on their own so we need some actual human decisions in the process. I mean is that is that a, a good description of, of what the plant is like or I mean you'll do a better one I'm sure. Hey considering you've only been here for five minutes you've done a pretty good job uh, but the principle is that we load it into a pre-sorting area. Typically this is where we get the deliveries where we're looking for things that we don't literally want to run through the plant, so like an accidentally deposited gas bottle, for example. Clearly, we wouldn't want to put that through a waste electronics plant because it would naturally explode. So we're doing a bit of pre-sorting before it goes in. This guy grabs the material, pops it onto the bay, and we're taking out rubbish content like paper, cardboard. But once we're happy with the material, it flows into something called a QZ2000, which basically is a, a two-metre chamber with chains in the bottom of the chamber, spinning the electronics apart. And it's actually the force of maybe a, a microwave hitting a vacuum cleaner that actually breaks apart the electronics. So you're kind of using the residual energy within electronics to bash itself apart down to its constituent parts. So plastics, metals, circuit boards, motors will all come out as separate, separatable streams. So the output from the QZ gets a little bit of size sorting, and we have a magnet, and then a lot of hand-picking goes on then. So anything that's a finished commodity for us, we'd hand-pick off at that point. And then what we can't handpick off gets granulated all down to the same size. And only once it's down to the same size can you automatically sort something. This tumbler, this, this big round thing here, is a, basically a size sorter. We're sorting the small bits away from the granulator so we don't have excessive wear and tear on our granulator because the small bits are already small enough. The large bits go through the granulator and the small and the output from the granulator gets joined back together and then... Up to us behind us here is an eddy current. So we literally drop it down to about 20 to 30 millimetres in size and then we run it over something called an eddy current, which is a bit like a reverse magnet, separating aluminium away from plastic. It does a pretty good job, but uh, within the aluminium there's little bits of circuit board and within the plastic there's little bits of value left as well, like um, strands of copper or pieces of cable or circuit board. So the aluminium we optically sort and we've got an optic looking down at a conveyor belt constantly and using air jets to then fire and separate the circuit board away from the aluminium as soon as it visually recognises the part that it says, right, your circuit board, literally an air jet firing to separate the circuit board away from the aluminium. We have to do that because 
They both take two different recycling routes. The circuit board goes off for copper and gold recovery, and the aluminium obviously goes for aluminium recovery. Mix them together, nobody wants to buy them. But separate them, they're good value streams. See the bright light down there? That is a camera looking down at a conveyor belt constantly, and we've told it to look for green things and brown things, but not silver things. So basically, whenever it sees circuit board, it fires an air jet and separates one from the other. Same uh, principle with the plastic in that the, the little bits of circuit board and cable within the plastic is not something that the plastic buyers particularly want. It adds a, a layer of complication to their sorting, and we'd much prefer to be able to keep the value here and smelt it ourselves. So we run it over a, something called a Titec machine that has an electromagnetic field that can register any disruptions to that electromagnetic field, like a force field almost. So any metal going through that field will say, right, actually I've, I've made a disruption, then it's tracked, and an air jet again fires it. So we're separating about three tonne an hour of plastic to virtually no metal content whatsoever. So it used to be about 3%, and now it's virtually none since we've bought this new machine. So my regular gigs this year have been storylines up until September, the restart project which started off with less money and now is a little bit more money, and hosting Spark Hackney. And as I said, regular gigs are really important for freelancers, but at the moment my regular gigs aren't making enough to pay my rent. So I need to find maybe one or two more regular gigs that can give me a more secure income going forwards into 2016 and I'm actually feeling ready to do that. Luck's so complicated, life's so complicated, so many things might get in the way but I'm feeling like quite active at the moment, quite unafraid of the next year. I'm going to just like bash my head against it in a more focused way until I finally kind of break through hopefully. So I'm going to be looking to get some of those more regular gigs. I've already got a few leads and and I've already been talking to a few people about some stuff so maybe things will come from that. And I'm going to be applying in the new year to a couple of big projects which will involve using a lot of the skills that I've been working on over the last five years and using those to fulfill some other people's briefs. They're in oral history and I don't know if I'll get either of those but they're big contracts and they would be really useful for me to get and I think in the past I would have looked at them and thought I'm not good enough to do those things or I don't have the skills but I feel like I do have the skills and that I am able to do those things at the moment so that's great it's even more important because at the moment the restart project funding is only up to a certain point storylines is over for the moment although new things might come with that and spark doesn't pay that much money so it's really important for me to get something else that's regular and of course if you are interested in hiring me giving me a big contract or giving me a regular job that would be amazing you can find out more about what i do at www.davepickeringstoryteller.co.uk you can contact me by email at goosefat101 at gmail.com so if you have any leads for any of the things that i'm talking about please reach out to me let me know apart from those things during this year I've also got some money from dressing up as a goblin. I did some stuff where I dressed up as a goblin and read stories to children at a couple of festivals in Enfield, a goblin-themed festival and a a fairy-themed festival. So I, I put together that goblin costume for that. But then I was also approached by a council about doing a storytelling activity for children 
around the launch of a map that they were doing for their park in Ealing. So I, I put that goblin character into that piece that I wrote for them. So I wrote them some new songs and some stories and kind of made a tour for them as a goblin going around the park. And I brought that goblin character back for that. So who knows, maybe I'll get some more goblin work in 2016. I don't know how I feel if about that, if I want it or not. I definitely don't feel like I'm as good at doing that as I am at some other things. But let's see, who knows? Certainly approach me and I will listen. I'm doing some goblin work, at least in January. So I'll have got back into the goblin vibe, maybe, by then. I've also made a little bit of extra money from occasionally editing podcasts for BAFTA. And that's come through my amazing friend, Matt Hill, who hopefully I'll be working with more in 2016. Stand Up Tragedy may generally have not made me any money, but I did manage to pay performers much better than ever before this year. And when I've run Stand Up Tragedy Presents events, where the money has been split just between me and another performer with £50 given to the sound engineer, I've actually made decent money and I've also done some extra work with Spark doing some workshops which is paid as well. All of that doesn't add up to very much money and it also doesn't include all of the work that I did to try and get work that didn't come to anything. So it doesn't include all of the applications I've sent out, all of the emails I've sent out, all of the pitches I've done to all sorts of magazines and news organisations that haven't been responded to. And looking back through my diary, I was surprised at how much of that I had done. And then there's all of the unpaid work, if you like. There's making this show every week. You can donate to the show, though, now. I've last set that up. And if you go to www.gettingbetteracquainted.co.uk, you'll see there on the SoundCloud page that there's now a button you can click on that will take you to a page where you can donate to the show. You can do that via PayPal. And if you're a listener to the show, regular listener to the show, please do that. It's a way that you can help me to keep on making them. One of the big things that I did on Getting Better Acquainted this year was the 200th episode special, which was basically five episodes, a whole week of different hosts interviewing me. It's a really great season and I recommend going back to listening to it if you can stand so much focus on me. I certainly learned a lot about myself and I'm sure you'll learn stuff that will be interesting too. I've done a lot of work with Spark London that hasn't been paid, the stuff where I have not been hosting. I've done some production stuff for them and probably the thing that I'm the most proudest of, I think, that I produced this year was with Spark and that was a night of true stories about sex workers and I'll put a link to that in the show notes as I'll put a link to all of the things that I refer to in this. I was really pleased to, to put that night together and I can't play you a clip from it because one of the things that made me the most pleased about that night is that it was sex workers talking for themselves. It was hosted by a sex worker and all of the stories were from sex workers and so I didn't say anything apart from introduce the night and that's really not a clip that's worth playing to you but I do recommend the episodes of Spark London which focus on the sex worker stories. There's been two of them. The first one is probably my favourite but there's, they're both really worth listening to so listen back to those over at Spark. Another thing that I did this year at Spark was I hosted a night called Multicultural Minds. Like the first collaboration that we did with Mind this was a really powerful night 
very important to me, a very amazing experience to be a part of because mental health isn't talked about very much and it's not talked about by the people who experience it very much within culture. So it's so amazing to be a part of a night that did that. Here is my story from that night. I felt anxious about the idea. I mean, I I experienced anxiety and depression. That's what my story is going to be about. But uh, I felt even more anxious than normal uh, about uh, telling a story tonight uh, initially because I was like, it's a multicultural night uh, and I don't feel like I should be one of the people telling those stories. And then I sort of thought about that and thought, hang on, Maybe that's racist in itself, right? Because I have a culture uh, and I, I, I need to think about how that culture affects my mind just as much as everybody else. And to, to think that white people are kind of outside of the multicultural world is just really problematic. Uh, so with that in mind, I've decided to tell you a story uh, tonight. Uh, so put your hands together for your first storyteller tonight. Dave, everybody. So I've never felt whiter uh, than I did at my niece's christening. Uh, My niece's dad is from Jamaica and her christening was at an evangelical Jamaican church. Uh, And uh, I'd never really been to an evangelical Jamaican church. In my mind, uh, Jamaicans weren't weren't evangelical Christians. They were Rastas, uh, but no. Uh, And there I was in this Jamaican church, uh, sort of a couple of, like my white family sort of dotted around and everybody else is black. Uh, But, um, and the, the preacher is really trying to convert us all. They kind of like, it's like they've been tipped off uh, a load of white atheists to come in let's convert them uh and so the the, the preacher does does the kind of speeches uh, 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 trying to convert us and then they get in the special preacher they've invited in who is a white preacher who kind of comes in and then really does the hard sell on the whites in the audience um and uh, so I felt very, very aware of my race during that, that experience in a way that I don't normally have to. Uh, and one of the things that I kind of, that stood out to me at that christening was the christening cake, the cake, which had the words, suffer the little children on it. Now, that for me was complicated. Like during the christening, my, my, my niece, thankfully, was too young to know anything about all of this. And they, the kids were just dancing at the front. They didn't have any effect to this. But for me, those words meant a lot because I was a little child who did suffer. And uh, so I didn't like the idea that my niece would be being brought up into this world in, with the idea that she had to suffer because I don't think people do have to suffer. So when I was uh, when I was a, a, a young child, I, I had quite a, a, a nice uh, early childhood. Um, but then my stepdad kind of moved into the family and became part of my life. Uh, and he was from uh, Northern Ireland. He was a Protestant working class Northern Ireland white guy. Uh, and his culture uh, was a culture of uh, you know boys and girls are like solidly regimented into you know gender gender roles uh, girls are to be sort of like spoiled and uh, boys are to be punished and that punishment was something that became part of my childhood you know I would be hit by him uh, he would be stern with me in lots of complicated ways and so that was my introduction to another part of my culture which was going to be messing me up for the rest of my life which was masculinity and being a man and the way that men are in society and this idea that we have to be strong and not vulnerable which became even more pertinent to my 
to my life and to my cultural existence. When I moved from a, a, an English school to a Welsh school uh, when I was 13. And when I did that, I was suddenly other. I had a different accent from everybody else in the school. Uh, and uh, I had glasses. I had acne. I read books. It was all like... A, a big kick me sign was basically on the way I looked. Uh, and so they did kick me. In fact, they, they gave me a nickname, Melvin. Everywhere I went in the school, they called me Melvin. They would spit at me. They would punch me in the corridors. It was a, a bleak uh, experience. It was, I kind of went viral, I like to say. Like everyone in the school knew that I was the kid that you bullied. You know, some kids bullied you intensely. Other kids just... You know, they was just what you did to Melvin's. They weren't really thinking about it. It was a, a, a mild moment in their day. So I experienced quite a lot of bullying. The bullying I experienced was about me not fitting into the role of being a man. So I was often called gay. I was often called a woman. I was often called like a, a tramp was a word that was used about me. Pedo. Lots of like othering words to say you're not a real man. So I experienced that at school. And that those two kind of experiences, my home life and my school life, I would say had a big factor. Uh, who knows nature nurture it's hard to say in making me someone who experiences anxiety and depression and the last kind of part of my cultural heritage really is what I inherited from my mum now my mum was a a posh uh was from a posh family her her dad was in the Raj in 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 uh, India so uh, that's part of my cultural heritage too uh as it is with many many white people in this room part of our cultural heritage will be you know slavery oppression imperialism that's what we did um so yeah so that's part of my cultural inherit inheritance that I got from her but she was she was mistreated by her culture too. She was sent to a boarding school. She was uh, emotionally abused by her mum repeatedly. And then she in turn emotionally abused me. So uh, I had this experience. Uh, I went to a, a child protection course to learn about child protection. And they, they went through what, what, what counts as emotional abuse. And uh, brilliantly... Uh, I, I ticked all the boxes. So I was like, ooh. Uh, and then I said to my sister, I had that experience and she'd had an identical experience. We both didn't realise we were being emotionally abused all our childhoods, uh, but we found out in child protection courses. So that's part of my cultural heritage too. And, and uh, so yeah, I inherited lots from my mum and she inherited stuff from my gran. Now my gran was racist. Like she would not see my niece because she was mixed race. Like she didn't want to see her. She was ashamed of her. And so even though my gran also had like a Damascus moment where she got ill and went to hospital and some black people uh, were her nurses and she realised they were people too, uh, it was too late by then. Like she wasn't seeing my niece. So she died without seeing my niece. And so all of those things were kind of going through my mind when I saw this cake that said, suffer the little children. And I don't want, you know, and I was very aware in that moment as well that, that I suffered in my childhood, but the kind of experiences that my niece are going to have are not the same as the ones that I had. And I need to work out how to help her to navigate through that multicultural world that she is going to inherit. So thank you very much. Stand-up tragedy itself this year was in many ways a massive success. We did four London shows, Tragic Winter, Tragic Spring, Tragic Summer and Tragic Autumn, as well as two Stand-up Tragedy Presents shows in London. And we took the show to the Edinburgh Festival. We also produced some live Getting Better Acquainted podcasts in Edinburgh and my solo show in Edinburgh. 
We were going to produce Radcliffe Royd's first solo show and I did some work with him on that but sadly this year some health issues stopped him from being able to go to Edinburgh although luckily we found out in time that it didn't cause too many problems for everybody involved in the Free Fringe. And Edinburgh itself was again, I think you could say, a success. It didn't make money for me. I lost a little bit of money, not a massive amount of money. But creatively, it was perfect. It was exactly what I'd hoped for. Stand Up Tragedy was at the level of consistent brilliance that I've been working towards for four years. The London shows as well this year have been incredibly strong. And I really feel like the idea I had when I originally thought of making Stand Up Tragedy, it finally exists as a show. I've finally seen the show that I had to make because nobody else was making it. And the audiences were good, particularly in London. Edinburgh is a hard beast to get consistently large audiences, although we did get a few large audiences. But in London, we were always pretty full up, if not sold out. So it's been a really successful year for Stand Up Tragedy. I'm really proud of what we've done. You can listen to the podcast to hear back all the tragedy. And I've made a podcast about why I make tragedy a couple of months ago that I put out on Getting Better Acquainted. Like this episode, it's a Getting Better Acquainted extra. And the solo show, which is really what has taken a hell of a lot of my life this year to make like a lot of my earning time has been spent working on that show and I'm really proud of it again that show I think has done what I intended it to do it's called what about the men mansplaining masculinity and it's a storytelling show that combines my life experiences with kind of TED talk style theorizing and analysis and it was inspired by the process of doing a survey of a thousand men about masculinity. It's not an easy show. It makes that very clear at the start. But it's, I think, an important show. At least the reactions of audience members have helped me to be convinced that it is an important show for people to see. Not just men, also women. The show got some really great reviews in Edinburgh the audiences that did come although they weren't massive paid really well because of the fact I think that the show is so personal and it felt like so intimate because it was a very small room I collected together all of the reviews and responses to the show in a storyfy just after Edinburgh so I'll put that in the show notes and I kind of daily blogged about it on Facebook whilst the run was going on in Edinburgh doing that show was massively important to me it gave me a weird focus in that because I was so worried about getting that show right everything else running a variety night in Edinburgh which isn't an easy thing to do became easy because of that show because I had so much emotional work to do every day I was kind of like quite chilled out quite although not always in a happy way but it kind of relaxed me during my Edinburgh process in a way that I would not necessarily have expected and Edinburgh was vibrant and amazing and I saw loads of amazing shows and met loads of amazing people and the whole experience was massively creatively and personally a success in pretty much every way that I define it. I also did one of my favourite performances of the whole year there which was when I 
did a live Getting Better Acquainted with Samantha Mann. That's probably one of my favourite things I've ever done. So go back and have a listen to that episode. One of my highlights from this year. We had guest hosts threaded into the fabric of stand-up tragedy this year. So the London shows had the second act was hosted by someone else, hosted and curated by someone else. And we had some of the Edinburgh shows hosted and curated by other people and it was great to see that the format worked with other people doing it seeing other flavors other ways that people can take tragedy but also kind of sitting back and going right this thing that I've made it works independently from me and that is kind of the goal I think that artists often have when we're making stuff is to get it to a point where it kind of works regardless of us it kind of has its own logic it does its own thing I can step back stand-up tragedy can carry on Although the funny thing is, because of that, because Stand Up Tragedy this year has really hit what I've always wanted it to be, it is something that I won't be carrying on, at least not as intensively, in 2016. I'm putting Stand Up Tragedy on ice for a year. It won't be gone forever, and certainly Stand Up Tragedy will still be doing things. I've already got a Stand Up Tragedy Presents booked in for the 18th of February at the Dog Star in Brixton in 2016, so that at least is happening, but I hope to do some other Stand Up Tragedy Presents later in the year. At the Stand Up Tragedy Presents at the moment, what I'm doing is I'm doing my own show, What About the Men?, mansplaining masculinity, followed by somebody else's show as like a double bill of tragedy, and on the 18th, I'll be doing stuff with Jambi McGrath. This year, the Stand Up Tragedy Presents that I've done have been amazing highlights of my year, not just in terms of trying out my show with larger audiences, because the London audiences have been bigger than in Edinburgh, but also in terms of seeing the shows that I was a double bill with. And it was amazing in November to do my show, followed by AJ McKenna's show, howl of the banty because it was such an evocative moment and not in a good way like the evocative it was powerful but it was a horrible kind of evocative in many ways but still the show itself that I was seeing was amazing but that day was international men's day which is a day that I have an ambivalent relationship with you can see about that if you go to mansplainingmasculinity.co.uk and look on the blog there you'll see my views on international men's day but it was also the day before the Transgender Day of Remembrance, where transgender people and people who love transgender people talk about all of the people who've died that year as a result of transphobic violence and our anti-trans people culture. And so it was a really evocative moment for that to happen, particularly tragic and sad because literally before AJ went onto the stage, she found out about the last death that had happened to a trans woman in this country in our prisons. She then went on stage and did a show about that and she rocked. It was an amazing performance, but I was glad to have been a part of that, to have been able to put that on our stage and for there to be some press there to give it some good coverage. So uh, I will link to all of that stuff in the show notes too. I'm definitely going to be focusing on the solo show in 2016, though. Now it's made, it's ready to be shown. I don't need any extra work put in. I just need to book in the dates. And so I'm looking to put it into universities, to get it into theatres, to get it in front of people in as many ways and places as 
possible. I've got loads of stuff that I'm going to be working on to try and push it to places. If you would like to book the show, it's an hour-long show about masculinity. It contains a lot of sex education stuff. It contains a lot of stuff about mental health. It challenges um, and it educates and it engages, hopefully, the audience in issues around gender and sex and power. Drop me a line. Email me or you can find me on Twitter at GooseFat101. It will finally go out this year on the Stand Up Tragedy podcast, completely unabridged, the full text, the full performance out there for people to listen to for free. I'm also hoping to make some YouTube video content that can be available for free. So I'm not just going to be looking to get paid for that show because it's important. It is, in fact, in many ways, my form of activism, my my form of political activism. And so it's complicated to be trying to get money for political activism. That's a complicated feeling. But I mean, I'm an artist. That's what I do. And I've got to try and make some money. So I'm, I'm going to be pushing to make some money from that as ironic in some ways as it is for a man to make some art about feminist issues and then make money from it. That is unfortunately what I'm going to be trying to do this year. Last year, I went to three marches. I went to End Austerity Now. I went to the Migrant Solidarity Demo and I went on the March for Housing. And I might go on more marches in the future and I might do more political activism physically in the future. But one of the things I realised this year was that my form of activism isn't lesser or irrelevant. It is still a form of activism. Going and doing this show and getting responses from audience members, seeing how people can be affected and touched and provoked by this material made me understand that it is activism. I always dismiss myself, but I do do stuff that tries to share politics that matters. And I put myself down too much for that stuff. And I'm trying to understand that the stuff I do it may not be the same as what other people who I admire does but both are important all of the ways of trying to change things are important so I did a lot of stuff this year a lot more than I thought I did and today looking back it kind of surprises me how much I did it's really easy to feel useless and like you're not trying when things aren't going right Um, And often you are trying. And my diary this year, looking back at it, proves that I've been trying. Now, trying isn't necessarily good enough. And trying, we don't live in a meritocracy. We don't live in a world that rewards trying necessarily. But, you know, at least you can feel personally okay with yourself if you can look back and say that you've tried. And I guess I haven't just tried, I've also succeeded by my own criteria, not necessarily by financial criteria. I've succeeded in achieving the kinds of things I wanted to achieve. And going forward next year, I'm going to try and make making money from stuff a priority. But that's not the only stuff that I'm going to do. I'm going to be making getting better acquainted for free. I'm also going to be trying to put together a really new, exciting podcast project that I'm not going to tell you too much about. It's a project that I'm doing with my partner, Jen, and it's going to be something really special. Hopefully, if we get it together, we've been working on it between Christmas and New Year this year, putting together the plans for it. And I hope to be able to tell you more about that as the year goes on. As I said, I'm going to be focusing on getting What About the Men, Mansplaining Masculinity out there in 
as many ways as possible. I'll be doing Stand Up Tragedy Presents nights and I'll be looking to get more commissions in terms of big projects. I did do a big project this year. I did my second candlelight tour for... 40 Hall, which is a, a house in Enfield owned by the council. And this year I wrote and directed and ended up performing in as well a candlelit tour set in the Victorian age, which was aimed for family audiences, working with performers who were volunteer performers, so members of the public. I was doing that from September all the way to December. I worked really hard on it. Really, really proud, actually, of the result. Better than the first year I did it, I think. It was sold out and audiences really loved it. So I hope that I'll be able to do that again next year, although I doubt it looking at the situation that the council is currently in. But you never know. Hopefully, I'll be able to go back and do that again next year. But going forward, I want to get some more things like that. I know I can provide clients with things that they want. And I know that I can do stuff that people will want to pay for, that what I do fits with, because that's been the best. Like 40 Hall, Restart, Storylines, they might all be very different from me and different things from me, but there have been things about me that fitted well with all of those projects. And I want to continue to find projects where my skills are useful and bring something to that other people are running. But I also want to make my projects make some money for themselves and going forwards I'm going to be looking to put that into the DNA of projects that I'm creating and promoting and developing so I'm hitting the new year with a new resolve and a sense that this year might be the year and I know I might be wrong I may listen back to this podcast in the future and think oh that is so ironic that is so painful now for me but I'm hoping that I will be able to capitalise on some of the work that I've done and push my projects forwards in a way that more people find out about them. You can help me do that, of course, by telling people about all of the projects I'm doing and particularly getting better acquainted if you're listening to it and you like it. Tell people about it. Let's spread the word about that. As I said earlier on, the 10 grand that I inherited when my grand died, I've burned through. I mean, burned is a judgmental word to use for I've used it to pay my basic living conditions over the last couple of years but that is all gone now so I've wasted some of my inherited privilege and so it goes in the next year I'm hoping that I'm going to be able to try and use some inherited privilege a bit more sensibly whilst I was visiting her before Christmas my mum told me this year that she'd inherited quite a large amount of money from my gran and that she doesn't want it to be unavailable to her children during the time that they might need it and she talked to me about do I have things that I want to ask money for do I have any big projects which I'd like funded and so I'm going to be using that to try and help me to capitalise on all of this work I've been doing. So put some money in and invest some of my future inheritance into giving some projects a real good foundation for them to stand on and have quality. Because unfortunately, without money, it's really hard to get quality. It's really hard to collaborate people and have them give the commitment that you might need if you can't pay them. It's really hard to to get good recordings if you can't 
get good equipment. It's really hard to edit stuff if your computer doesn't work, like mine doesn't work very well at the moment. So I'm going to try and invest some of that money. And so I don't just burn through it. It becomes something that can help me make more money in the future. All of this is really complicated for me to think about and talk about because I don't like money. I don't agree with it politically. I would change so much. I would, I would, change and redistribute wealth I don't feel good about using any privilege for myself I feel like if you've got privilege really you should just be giving that as much as possible to other people using it in ways that will help other people who have less privilege but it's a complicated world you've still got to live you've still got to try and do the things you want to do I'm wrestling with all of this stuff all the time but and also that is the hardest stuff for me it's easier for me to come up with ideas it's easier for me to create stuff than it is for me to sit down and fill in forms and to worry about if people are going to judge me or hate me at the other end of an email or or think about budgets and work out all of this stuff that isn't necessarily playing to my strengths but this year I'm just going to do it I'm just going to do it in 2016 I'm going to try and just do it coming up next week and going through 2016 will be conversations with people I know from my closest friends and family to people I met once at a party and each one will be with a different person it will be a different connection between me and that person I will be a different person in every one of those episodes so basically business as usual for getting better acquainted like At the beginning of last year, I'm very low now in my conversation bank. One of the things I'll be doing in the first month or so of 2016 is recording a hell of a lot more conversations with people so that I've got those conversations there to use. And another thing that's coming up for me is my 15-year anniversary with Jen, who is my partner. And I'm going to end this episode with a kind of edited version of a story I told about this year, 2015's anniversary experience. So on the 14th of February this year, it was uh, my 14-year anniversary, me and my partner's 14-year anniversary of being together. Uh, Now, the thing about having your anniversary on Valentine's Day is you can't get any fucking tables. You can't really do anything about your love because everything's about everybody's love. And so it's really hard to find a way of squeezing in. We tried different methods over the years to squeeze in, but this, this year we decided decided, no, fuck it. Our anniversary is just going to be the Tuesday after Valentine's Day because uh, it happens to be half term. And uh, my, my partner works in a school, so we can basically have a weekend day uh, in the middle of the week. So that's what we're going to do. And what we're going to do is we're going to go to a spa. Um, neither of us had ever been to a spa before. We went uh, to a, a hotel in Shepherd's Bush, glamorous, uh, to a spa uh, for, for the day. Now, we couldn't afford to have any of the treatments or anything like that. So we were just doing the, the common garden spa experience um but what that was in this place was it was a a big jacuzzi um it was a sauna it was a steam room uh, a foot spa and then there was actually there was like a a snow room 
which is like a freezer where you were like went into like the ice out of the out of the heat. So that the snow room had been the the deciding factor, apart from the cheapness of this hotel. Um, so yes, so we we had the day in the spa doing all those things. We were we went to dinner and we were like, well, what we're going to do is we're going to go back for the last hour uh, of the day and we're going to go back to the spa. So we finished our our, our meal. Uh, we went down to the room. Uh, we sort of like danced to churches for a bit, you know, like you do. And then we sort of put on our bathing costumes and our, our robes and stuff and went out to go back into the spa. Uh, we'd been given a swipe card at the beginning of the day that we had to give back at the end of the day. Uh, and that got us into the spa. And we had two, two different exits to go into the spa, the, the, uh, the, 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 the men's and the women's. So we had to go into the spa through separate doors. So I go in first, swipe the card, uh, open, the, open the, the door into the changing rooms, pass the car back to Jen, my partner, who's going to go in through the other door. Uh, and then I sort of start to go into the changing rooms and the lights aren't on and they don't come on. Um, so I sort of go, oh, uh, the lights aren't on uh, and sort of think I'm talking to Jen. But Jen's already gone into the other changing rooms. We haven't got phones. We're out of phone contact. It's a very strange situation these days. Um, and so I, th- I assume she's gone through into the spa. So I think, fuck it. OK, right. It's dark in there, but I remember the way through. So I'm just going to run through this changing room in the dark uh, to get through to the spa. So I get through to the spa. I get into the spa and the room is like a kind of horror movie set or like a post-apocalyptic set. It's like there's the, the lights aren't on, but some of them are. You know, there's some, some lights on, some not on. Uh, sort of, there's like uh, everybody's flip-flops and robes that they used in the day are just like dotted around the room left and like cups are left all over the place. And it doesn't look right. It doesn't look like this is a, a working spa. Um, but, I'm, but, I'm, but I'm in the spa now. And, uh, you know, I'm pretty sure that it should be working. Uh, that it, you know, we're, we're within the time that we were supposed to be there. So I don't understand why it's not working. But I wait for Jen to come and join me in this darkened spa. And I start to feel incredibly on edge. Like, I, I don't really know what to do. I'm waiting and waiting and waiting and she doesn't come through. So I go back through the changing room, run through the darkness again. I can't see her in the hall. So I assume she must be in her changing room. So I run back through the darkness, back into the spa. And I'm like, right. She's in her changing room. I can't go in there because I'm a man in a swimming costume uh, and I don't want to upset anybody. But at the same time, this is taking a very long time. I don't really know what to do. We're supposed to be meeting in the showers, so I decided to have a shower. Don't have a shower in a really frightening room. It will scare the fucking shit out of you. Um, so I'm incredibly on edge still uh, and she's not come back through. So I go and I go up to the, to the door, to the, to, the, to the women's changing rooms and I, I finally get the nerve up to push it open and go... Jen! And she goes, thank God! Thank God! And, uh, like, I go into the changing room, I clasp her hand, because apparently it's much harder to get through the women's changing room. It's not a straight line. There's a lot of other obstacles in there. So she's just kind of been stuck in there for a bit. Uh, and then she comes through into, into, the, into the spa, and we're basically in the horror movie set together, thankfully. And that makes the sort of on-edgeness uh, start to decrease. You know, I'd, I'd been sensing I was going to have a panic attack, but now I wasn't because uh, there was Jen and we were together. We were together in this experience. Um, and I said, well, where were you? And she said, well, she'd gone out to, to try and give the, to, to go down to the office to see if there was anyone there about the spa, but there wasn't anyone there. But apparently there was three men singing a Grease uh, medley of songs who were on a stag night and they'd also been trying to get into the spa. So that was confirmation bias. That made her believe we definitely were supposed to still be allowed to go 
going to the spa. Uh, so then, so there we both were in this spa room, uh, realizing we're probably not supposed to be there. So what we did uh, is we got into the jacuzzi, and as the bubbles of the jacuzzi are going round, uh, we start talking, and we're talking about do we think this is still open? What do we think's going on? And we start talking about kind of like childhood experiences that have made us this way, right? Because in very different ways, we've both been programmed to not want to get things wrong and not fuck things up. So uh, what we'd basically done is we'd gone right uh, because we were so determined not to fuck things up. We'd pushed through. We'd gone right. This is we're, we're supposed to be here. This is we don't want to offend anyone. We don't want to don't want to mess this up. So we'd pushed through. We'd ended up in that in that jacuzzi. And the, one of the things that had, that, that made us finally decide to get out of the spa and, and, and that we were definitely wrong and that the spa had closed an hour earlier and we just got the times wrong um, was when uh, we started to feel our skin prickle all over our body and we realised that there was far too much fucking chlorine in the water. So that was like the end of, of, of our anniversary night was like rushing out and going back, to the, going back to the room and having lots and lots of showers to get the, the chlorine off our body. Um, but it was kind of a romantic thing still really because after 14 years we could still kind of learn things about ourselves and each other together uh, in an abandoned horror movie jacuzzi uh, in the middle of the night. So Happy New Year. I'm going to go and try and edit this quick enough to be able to have some time off during New Year's Eve. Please donate to the show if you can. Please reach out to me and offer me work if you can I hope things go well for you in 2016 and I hope things go a hell of a lot better for so many people in 2016 because really there are lots of things going wrong and that are bad for many people all across the world really at the moment and if this show is trying to do anything politically it is trying to bring us together to say, yeah, we're all different, and yeah, we're all the same. And for us to try and find ways of being empathetic with each other, having solidarity with each other, and looking out for each other, even though we're different, even though we're the same. You can follow Getting Better Acquainted on Twitter at gba podcast you can like it on facebook and subscribe to it pretty much anywhere that podcasts go to hang out with each other on the internet www.gettingbetteracquainted.co.uk is one place you can find it spread the word shout about it a little bit for me thank you so much for listening and remember there are lots of ways to get better acquainted